Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. My name is Derek Graham, and I'm here with my friend and colleague, Nitin Gower. Hey, Nitin. Hey, Derek. How are you? Good indeed. Now, we're going to focus on you a bit this time. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's about time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. We'll have to put that on the list of things to focus on you more often. And you've done quite a bit of research into, you know, the requirement of the infrastructure necessary to tokenize real world assets. So I want to talk a little bit about like that. But along the way, we've actually been asked a few times, what the hell is this painting in the background? So I'll show you because this is the story we're about to cover. So the story about that is that's a Vietnamese pop artist. And what he's saying (laughs) there is here's capitalism and look at what it's doing to my country. And he's got this very sultry looking woman standing there with KFC projected upon her. And, And it's sort of a statement in regards to Vietnam's introduction of capitalism into it. And uh, I happen to love the painting. My partner, Grace, happens to hate the painting. So it happens to be <laughs> in my, my study, which is the reason why you're all tortured by it too. But today, we're really talking about capitalism, aren't we? Because we're talking about how to tokenize real world assets. So, so let's just get a little bit of this in perspective about what we mean and, and what real world assets are out there to tokenize. So, so firstly, one has to realize that the major stock exchanges of the world, there's some 58,000 listed companies as of 2021. And that represents some $100 trillion of assets on those exchanges. In addition, the private equity market assets is, has reached about $11.7 trillion as of the 30th of June. Now that's according to McKinsey Consultant. But privately held assets, Nitin, like, 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 you know, privately owned family companies, et cetera, you know, aren't bundled into those P's and those listed companies. And I would imagine that those privately held companies are probably have a great higher capitalization than all of the PE and all of the listed companies just by pure volume of them. So what role is there for digitizing global assets and potentially fractionating these and enabling a platform for global democratization of assets, which is a very big ask, of course. It's a big ask because this is a young asset class. I mean, yes, it's got a few thousand tokens, but but what distributed ledger technology platforms are big enough to be able to put an entire stock exchange on them, or more to the point, the global stock exchanges on them? And is this a sort of a nexus point for my painting capitalism there to actually really democratize assets. Now, what I mean by that is I'm not talking about whether it happens to be socialist, communist or democratic. No, I'm talking about what it truly means, which is, you know, to enable everyone to have opportunity. And 
it seems to me to be this opportunity to globalize real world assets in a tokenized manner is incredibly powerful, but it has probably two big areas of challenge. One of them is technology, which we're going to address today. And the other one is yep. just how disruptive is it if you start breaking down the national silos, such as the Australian Securities Exchange, the New York Stock Exchange, you know, the, 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 the CACS exchange in, 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 in France, you know, each one of the exchanges and there's a certain degree of national pride associated with them. What happens if you yeah. do global, global democratization of, of these assets? So this is all happening right now. And of course, as a listening audience, many of the developers and, and the, the participants of the industry are thinking, well, that's great. So where can I benefit out of these real world assets? and you know, capitalization or democratization and fractionization of it. And of course, for the investors, where can we invest in real world asset you know, digitization opportunities? So, so yeah. let's, let's roam through that. You've written an excellent paper on it. I've had the joy of reading it as of 6,000 other you. people have. Maybe you'd talk us through your thoughts on this process of digitizing these real world assets. And in light First of all, thank you, Derek, for taking a read and, and providing your feedback. I've been working on this for over a decade, actually. It's been a long time in terms of, so again, financial service industry is looking at crypto as a fifth asset class, which we've discussed here several times. Yes. Crypto is about 1.2 trillion today, give or take. It was the 3 trillion at its peak. And if you look at traditional financial markets, this is some total of all the other asset classes. This is your home, equities, mortgages, bonds, Ooh. hedge funds. It's about 470 plus trillion dollars. So you can imagine wow. that in bigger scheme of things, crypto is still a rounding error, uh, if yes. I can use that term. And it's growing. But the question that keeps coming up is, how can we modernize the infrastructure to all the things that you mentioned? Is every country has secondary markets, every country has an exchange, every country has different rules and regulation. Whereas crypto, essentially, if I, and we've cited this example before, if you had an ether anywhere in the world, the access to crypto markets is exactly the same. There are no barriers, same rules of engagement. And that has a certain power of bringing, again, an egalitarian force to providing the same rules of engagement, not giving necessarily the West a undue advantage of, again, yes. having a much more powerful markets. So looking at that, again, you know, in theme is what can we do in using the same technology that has the power of truly creating global markets and still, and that's a Herculean task because remember, there's already a world exists that exists and we live in it. And how do you transform that world, which is largely, which is in the process of being digitized, by the way, in many cases, if you look at the guts of financial services industry, there's a lot of old tech because it's been evolving for, you know, 35, 45 plus years. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, legacy and the burden of legacy is always a challenge because for the same reasons why we in the United States still write checks and trying to get off writing checks, which the mm -hmm. rest of the world makes fun of us, and rightly mm -hmm. so. It's the burden of legacy. Visa MasterCard was the first one in the US and it's been ridiculed for the cost structures, but that's legacy. And it, the legacy has gone through its own maturity and it works. So let me shed light on the article that I wrote, in, which is essentially going towards my thesis, which says that for us to truly take advantage of taking blockchain and applying that to existing capital market infrastructure, 
this is how we move things. So this is how trade happens. You know, what, what do we need to do to build? And the normal thinking in the industry is let's tokenize an asset and we'll solve the problem. Whereas I think that you need to build the infrastructure first, which is build the rails that the mm. asset, can, asset can travel on. So let me give you paint a picture of how things are done today. And I will draw an analogy in terms of what are the challenges with today's system, which many people don't really know. I'll, and and for this, for the benefit of our audience, Derek, I'll try to oversimplify it. But there's a lot of complexity that's embedded into any of these processes that I described. So let's take a life cycle of a trade. So here you are, Derek. You you as an investor places an order to buy or a sell with your broker dealer. That's step number one. Step number two: broker dealer firm sends the order to a secondary market, like an exchange like CAC 40 or NASDAQ or NYSE, depending on what exchange it is, or market for execution. So markets are, again, you have secondary markets, you have other forms of secondary markets, you know, that are marketplaces besides the typical exchange. That's step number two. So right now we have investor, you go through some investment management entity that goes through a broker dealer. And then eventually transaction is matched between buying and selling parties where you have now a bunch of automated systems. These are order books that are maintained by, the secondary markets. And today it's it's going through some sort of a clearing corporation because we don't want people just pl placing fake orders, trying to rise the price up, which is what happens quite commonly in crypto markets, as you may have seen. Uh, and those trades essentially lead to, so ensuring that when you place a trade, there is substance behind the trade and that somebody is taking responsibility for the trades that you place to ensure that you have enough funds or you have enough collateral that will back that trade up. Mm. So NSCC, at least in the U.S. context, and you have equivalent of any of these structures in most countries, Security Clearing Corporation sort of, you know, confirms the trade between those two parties, ensuring that, hey, you have placed the trade, you're good with it, you place the trade, you have money for it, let's, let's not match these things. So in this case, the National Securities and Clearing Corporation, or NSCC in short, acts as what they call as a central counterparty. So this, this is the entity that sits in between the entire system and takes responsibility to ensure that they will make any one of the party drops from keeping their commitment, they will make the, they will make the other party whole. And that's essentially the guarantee they provide. And they, of course, there's a fee for each of these, you know, these steps. Now, NSCC in, the, in turn issues trade summary to both buying and selling firms. They maintain certain level of collateral that allows them to be able to make those commitments. And then eventually, NSCC sends those instructions to another entity called Depository Trust Company, which is basically which which provides the netting and settlement of this. What that means is they ensure that there's enough collateral kept by the buying entity, and they provide the settlement of the net position to say at the end of the day, Party X has this many stocks and so much cash, and Party Y has this you know this many sort of you know, the stocks for the trade. So DTCC then transfers security electronically to the appropriate accounts that the NSCC sends the instructions to, which essentially means that NSCC does all the accounting functions, sends that to DTCC. DTCC maintains the custody of these assets. And eventually these firms instruct their settling bank to settle the funds because of the guarantees maintained by these parties. Hmm. And that's one trade. Wow. So you can imagine... In this entire scheme of things, you have an investor or, or an investment management firm that represents an investor. In this, in your case, you could be a broker. You have a broker-dealer function, which a broker talks to another broker. You have a central counterparty. 
you have a central secure security depository, which in this case DDCC, and then you have the financial institutions at both sides. So an average trade goes through anywhere between seven to seven, seven to thirteen parties involved in between. My gosh. Now that's one trade, right? And this has evolved over time. And the re- some of the reasons, Derek, for the systems to have evolved over time is to avoid things like market manipulation, is to avoid things like people placing fictitious and fake orders to you know, increase the demand and and what, what the crypto world calls a rug pull. And then you have the various counterparties in between who whose primary function is to make sure that every trade goes through and there are people who are held responsible and held accountable behind those trades. And that essentially are series of counterparties. So our modern financial infrastructure, as I described, is essentially a chain of interconnected market participants that aid in accumulating capital and forming investment resources. And these various market market participants, as I mentioned, have specific functions such as asset custody, central bookkeeping, which is what NSCC is all about, liquidity provisioning. There are some entities who are provide liquidity, you know, who make the market and provide liquidity to the market. There's clearing and settlement, which is what EDCC does in this case. And because of those functions, in some cases, capital constraints or in regulation, many of these entities are not vertically integrated to avoid mm. things like FTX from happening, which prevents mm. collusion or unilateral investment decisions that one kind of says, hey, I have all the assets. I should be able to move things around till I, till I, you know, till the market is good for me and I can then go back and, and refill those. It's it's to prevent FTX-like situations or Bernie Madoff-like situation, but they still happen. FTX happened, Bernie Madoff happened. So I'll pause here, Derek. That's the complexity of what we are solving. And I'll, I'll briefly provide you know, how DLT blockchain tokenization of these assets is supposed to solve some of these complex web of of these systems that are in place. And I described the U.S. system. And in many cases, as you know, the U.S. capital market is the largest in the world. So a lot of parties in the, you know, around the globe have adopted the same model to mimic the U.S. systems for the same reasons that U.S. has has adopted over time. So you can actually see exactly how this has evolved as a legacy, a legacy set of technologies. In the very early days, you know, trade was done on the floor and it was done utilizing chalked boards and pink pieces of paper or duplicates were, were stamped and handed to the brokers that shouted the trade from the floor. And that yeah. then was taken through a piece of, of a process of backroom office stamping. And then that person got the transfer of the certificate. Now, I even in 1986, I saw the floor of the Perth Stock Exchange or the Australian Stock Exchange Perth branch of it, so to speak. And they were chalking in 1986 up on the board trades. And so what you're talking about is an evolution of chalking. It's an evolution of these different groups validating it. And when you explain it to me, it gives me a sense of comfort that so many third party organizations are validating my transaction and making sure it happens. But Nitin, with a trustless environment like a distributed ledger technology, there's no need for validation of instant trade, instant pay, instant audit to occur. So that kind of changes things, doesn't it? The issue is, I'm assuming, how do you create such a massive DLT to be able to cope with it? It's probably going to be an enterprise-based distributed ledger technology, I'm assuming. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. So that the answer is yes and no, right? One is it's easy for crypto because verification, validation, creation of this asset is happening on chain. 
so easy to verify because that lends itself to transparency to say, we know there are how many tokens in the chain, we know who, which wallet owns what tokens and everything else. In the case of real world assets, for let's say, for example, mortgage or mortgage-backed securities, which essentially is, a, is an investment instrument, you have to have a house and Derek has to own the house and Derek has to have some record of owning that house. And eventually, a bunch of houses in Derek's neighborhood is bubbled up into what they call as mortgage-backed securities, which basically is securitized or basically gotten secondary markets where people invest and people who are initially lending you the amount to buy a house, they're able to you know, skim off some of these, you know, the returns they would get from making that investment decisions, which is a perfectly valid sort of life cycle of that investment per se. The, the challenge with some of the things that you talk about, right, which is the debate, and it's, a, it's, it's quite common, Derek, and I've heard this at least in the three down cycles, which is in the bear market, that every time there's a bear market, the enterprise blockchain shows up yes. only because <laughs> it has a tendency to say, "Hey, let's let's apply the tech. Let's not focus on 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 the overall market cap of you know of the industry per se." And so we're in the same cycle again. And and every time that happens, there is not only investment, but there is focus on taking the industry by its horns and saying we need to modernize our aging financial system. And in the Listen, entire cycle that I just described. What about explaining what an enterprise blockchain system is versus an open source blockchain system? That's a, that's a great question. So let, uh, let me do that first. So for example, Bitcoin is an open blockchain system. It is anybody can join. It's That's why it's permissionless. You can either be a wallet holder, you can simply hold Bitcoin, you can acquire Bitcoin from your own resources, or you can run a host of a node and get into this mining system that we've been discussing for quite some time. And so those are what they call as open blockchain ecosystem, permissionless, nobody needs any permission, anybody can participate with little or, or some resources. And that's that's essentially the open networks that anybody can join in and, and, and things are transparent. When we look into permissioned blockchain, which is opposite of the open networks of permissionless, that essentially implies that you have enterprises, which means that if you're involved in doing securities trading, which is what the process that I described, or you're involved in, 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 in trade finance, then you don't need every Tom, Dick and Harry to be in that network. You only need the certain parties who are tasked with doing the business or whether it's trade finance or whether it's trading securities, the entire life cycle that I described of the seven to 13 different parties who are involved in it. Uh, you don't need the entire world to be on the network. And so that way you permission, you govern the access to say, if you're not a financial institution, you cannot participate in this because you're a regulated entity and we expect a certain things mm. of you. We expect you to follow the rules. You need, we expect you to know and follow the rules. We expect you to have fiduciary responsibility, have prudential sort of regulation adhered to in terms of keeping the asset safe and so on and so forth. So which means that you know, any Tom, Dick and Harry simply cannot join the network. You have to be a regulated financial institution something similar to the existing financial network, except that now it's a blockchain-based transaction system where blockchain provides a transaction network and we are onboarding these known participants with certain due diligence built into the system. And once they join the network, then they can perform the assigned task that's given to them. And at that point, by the nature of these permission blockchain networks, they're only transparent to the network participants, not to the rest of the world, and even that transparency because of the data privacy laws and everything else can be obfuscated, which sort of, you know, which becomes an interesting advantage, but also a problem because in many cases, some of the true advantages of blockchain is transparency, which lends itself 
to the trustless models that you have described, Derek. Mm. But again, the idea there is that because you have a limited amount of market participants and we know who's doing what, we can still hold the parties accountable if they were to engage in malfeasance or cheat the system, just like what we begin to do in terms of, you know, in case of consensus mechanisms, which is there to protect the security of the entire network per se. So I'll pause here, Derek, to see if that made sense. It does. So it solidly has a role enterprise blockchains. And what tends to happen is that during the excited times of, of open source distributed ledger technology discussions, it becomes very much an esoteric discussion about the global good of, you know, of transparency, et cetera, et cetera. But just like you know, we often hear in supply chain environments, everyone's saying we can put this on a blockchain. Sometimes in supply chain, it doesn't need to be on the blockchain. Sometimes in transactions, it doesn't need to be totally open sourced. It needs to be managed in an environment where yeah. the use, the special case use and validation of a distributed ledger technology, the fact that you're taking a third party auditor group out, instantly auditing it and providing, you know, infallible track record of the transactions becomes the reason it's getting used, used, not because it has to be openly seen by everybody. It's simply a transaction base. And in some cases, it's important that the privacy of the transactions are in place. Yeah. So clearly enterprise DLT has a solid role to play. And in this particular area, I would have thought that it becomes the dominant of these major transactions. Now I can hear in the background people shouting, no, no, that's not how it should be. We should see every <laughs> transaction occur. But tell me, Nick, do you think it really should be an open source environment or it should be an enterprise-based environment? Yeah, so I have actually a very poignant perspective on this, and that is a few things, right? One is when you change the world, simply switching to a permissionless world, which is mm. the world today that's dominated by the likes of Bitcoin and Ether, is a radical shift for the existing industries because there's a lot of locked capital and a lot of locked processes which have evolved over time. So to expect a bank to complete ditch everything and switch to a decentralized way of transacting not only breaks their business model, but also breaks some of the systems that we all are used to. We are supposed yes. to go to a bank. We're supposed to hold our parties accountable. So there are a few things around it. So the next step, I think, is to build the scaffolding that will house the foundation of the next generation of the modernized financial infrastructure. And that essentially is saying, let's preserve the market infrastructure. And when I say market infrastructure, all the players that are listed in any market. So every market has an infrastructure of certain parties who provide certain services, which is the permission entities that I talked about. And preserving them and bringing them to this blockchain-esque is, solves two issues. One, it's it promotes these entities to focus on digitization because digitization is the first step to participate in blockchain ecosystem. They have to be in a digital way of transacting. Second thing it does for us is forces the industry to think about asset tokenization, right? So before we go into that model, I'd like to state this, that from a technology perspective, we can take Ethereum, because Ethereum has some of the tenants of smart contracts, some of the business logic built into it. It's a transaction system. It has all the things that we today are processed in this fragmented network that I described, except that now we are flattening that business process and we're solving the issue of, again, time and trust, which has cost implications in the fee structure which means that suddenly now I'm focusing on processing efficiency of a transaction. Yeah. And once I get to that stage, you build the infrastructure, tokenize assets. So this is the process of, you know, you know, asset tokenization tokenizes an asset, whether it's a real world asset 
or a token that represents a real world asset is not only depowering the next generation of digital economy, but it also paves the way for new business model built upon this instance economy. So all the things that we've been talking about in terms of fractional ownership of an asset and ability for me to create more liquidity now because I can take a bar of gold and break them into you know, a million small chunks and make it available to the masses. Uh, and it's widely understood and accepted now that the blockchain technology lays the foundation for a trusted digital transaction network. And not only is this remediating over some time, but it fuels the growth of marketplaces. It fuels the growth of secondary markets due to new synergies and co-creation because of this digital interaction that's happening in these newly created marketplaces. I think that's the end goal, but you simply cannot show up one day and start building that stuff because just like travel agents, and I, I joke about this with in all my public presentations, Derek, that there was a time, and I'm old enough to realize that, and I had moved to the United States, that I would go to a travel agent. I would actually shop. And the travel agent was nothing but, but a, a information broker. So there are two reservation systems in the world, you know, Sabre and Amadeus, which basically bring all the inventory of our seats. And the travel agent would mark up and they would find the best rates. But we don't have travel agents anymore. Well, maybe some some are still there for, for different category of customers, but we all go to Expedia Trivago and we curate our travel experiences, but they, they do more than just booking travel for us. They're giving us the entire travel experience in terms of, you know, uh, hotel, airlines, and other experiences that we like to engage in when we travel. Similarly, I think that once you begin to digitize this entire industry and tokenize assets, then you'll find a certain level of disintermediation and perhaps there are new intermediaries that may pop up. And the whole idea there is to provide the immediacy of transactions, whether it's globally or whether it's the same country, which has this advantage of unlocking capital. It has the, the cost of reduced fee structures because suddenly now you have all these entities who are collecting rent. They don't exist anymore. So you have all these advantages that can be expected, but we need to start building the highways first before we take advantage of the speed that we aspire to achieve, if that makes sense. So I can see that building the highways is going to be very beneficial for those high-end developers that are going to have that knowledge to be able to build enterprise-based infrastructures like this. But where do you think the opportunity is for industry participants that are yeah. currently in this industry? And where do you think the opportunity might be for investors that are looking at this going, well, that's interesting. This is going to be enormous. This real world assets, RWA, as you say, being tokenized. That's it, just a huge industry. And it, it's not just huge. It'll go on for decades and decades. It is. It is. And the, the uh, what's interesting is I work for a large financial institution, Derek, as you know, and I've had this conversation day in, day out, not only us, but any large financial institution has now a digital asset team trying to explore this in terms of their role, both in terms of transformation, but also in terms of disruption. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of companies, as many as you have in the blockchain crypto world have transformed for example, if you look at Chainlink or Talos or many of the who are really designed for crypto industry have created an offshoot to address the existing financial institutions and eventually existing institution, not just banks and, and, and FIs, but also large corporations and large shipping entities and so on and so forth. So I think that's the opportunity we ought to explore is one, the technology areas, then you have the digital asset infrastructure companies who are trying to bring technology closer to financial institutions and provide integration between the two, two worlds and coexistence, which I think is such a huge opportunity, simply because 
the existing assets, these are not just private markets, but also existing sort of stocks, bonds, and equities collectively is, is 470 plus times higher or bigger than crypto assets. So all the investments going to new corporations, new entities who are trying to not only transform the industry, I think it has a multiple X impact on this because this is a proven market. We kind of know what the problems are. We kind of know what the cost structures are. And so once you're able to understand what you're disrupting and what you're transforming, it's easy to understand the multiples of returns that you can expect, which is hard in the same venture space if you were to make investments in a crypto space because you're relying upon crypto's market cap to go up. So it's a longer conversation, but I'm hoping you get the point in terms of the investment attitudes and, and avenues in, in these two areas. So traditionally, if you provide very high rates of liquidity for an asset, you increase its price earnings ratio. And sure. so if you look at a private company, often they sell, unless they're strategic, they sell as a P of maybe three, sometimes five if it's exceptionally good. If you look at a public company, it's it's normally 12 to 15 for something that hasn't got Sorry. a huge future in it, but you know it's, it's steady and returning and of course, much higher than that for technology. So fractionating all these assets, democratizing them, putting them on distributed ledger technology, opening them up to a global environment is yep. likely to be able to increase the price earnings ratio, the value of the asset. So that's Correct. another instant thing that may well happen. Look, fascinating discussion, Nitin, as always. Thank you so much for building such a, Thank you. You know, a really interesting paper that's shaking us and is to putting some, some flags on the ground saying, look at what the future is going to be. Look at the path forward. The path forward is going to be extraordinary, but disruptive at the same time. So I hope the audience enjoyed that. I look forward to seeing you next week and, and probably getting our, our hands back into the local current activity that's occurring around the world because it always is occurring. Thanks, Nitin. No, thanks, Derek, for the time. And this, work, this week was, a, was an opportune week for us because things were a bit quieter than usual, which is a great respite from all the excitement that we could handle. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to share some of the you know, perspectives. Good on you. See you next week, Nitin. Take care, Derek. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.